It's the Making Money Show with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager. I'm Gord Whitehead, retired broadcaster, although sometimes I don't speak like one. <laughs> In any event, Ron, this one is going to take some time. And I think we want to start, at, we, we both know, and you certainly know a lot more than I do because you were in the business for so many years, but I have a good friend, and, and you know him as well, that I can remember giving him, trying to give him advice over the years, and I think back to the Briex days. He was one of the early investors in Briex and watched it ride up dramatically, and it was Christmas Eve of the year before everything fell apart. And I remember saying to him, what are you waiting for? You've made a small fortune on this stock. Why don't you sell it? Oh, it's going to keep going up. People think of stock ownership like they think of marriage. They take their stock certificate, they put their arm around it, and they walk down the aisle with it. They expect to change rings, exchange rings. They expect the JP or the priest or the minister or whoever is doing the ceremony to look at them both and swear an oath that they're gonna to stay together for the rest of their life. Stock ownership is not like that. You've got to buy stocks and there is a time where you sell stocks. There's many you can own for decades. I've owned many stocks for decades, but I've also bought and sold companies that haven't worked or for one reason or another, have uh, just other opportunities have presented themselves. I needed some tax breaks. We're gonna get into all those things, but you've got to sell stocks because frankly, to make a profit, it's the difference between what you bought it for and what you sold it for. Not what you bought it for, the high it once reached, and now it's way back down in the cellar. It's what you can get for it between those two transactions that determines your profit. So you've got to sell sometimes. And it's not being a trader. It's not It's not being in and out, in and out, in and out all the time. As you say, some stocks are, are, are buy and hold for quite some period of time, but that is not always the case. No, and uh, the best quote I've heard is by Ted Weisberg, and I've got this written down at home. Anyone with money can buy stocks, but only smart people can sell them. And how do you get smart? Well, you've got to spend some time understanding the signals that the stock is giving you or the share price is giving you that says it's time to say, hasta la vista, baby. Stand at the dock and say goodbye because frankly, you're not going to get that advice from the investment community. They'll always tell you to buy them. They'll you never always hear too much about selling them, do you? Oh yeah, I mean, most analysts have never met a stock they didn't like and that's the old saw from the industry for as long as I've been in it. Now there's a group called the Bespoke Investment Group and they looked at 12,122 analyst recommendations over a long period of time. And this is from CNBC.com. Uh, it was an article, all analysts want you to do is buy, here's proof. And of these 12,122 recommendations, guess how many were sell recommendations? 6.67%. I, I see the number on the paper. Yeah, 6%. In other words, almost 94% of the recommendations were to either buy or hold. And so the investment community does not do a very good job of communicating when to sell a stock. If you're going to be a successful investor, you really, really have to figure this out on your own. Because if you don't, 
these guys just aren't going to tell you. So if you're right 70 plus percent of the time on your stock picks, you would be a very successful investor over the long term. <laughs> there aren't many of those out there, are there? Well, I mean, you get people with success ratios in that range. I mean, we're talking about guys like Warren Buffett. That's because, hey, along the way, they sell stocks too. They don't just accumulate. They sell stocks. And so there is a time where you need to do some selling. And if 70% of your stock picks are successful and you hold them for a long term, it means that you still have a fair share of selling to do over your investment career. And, you know, when you talk about Mr. Buffett, and we've, we've referenced him, he's the Oracle of Omaha and probably the world's most successful investor of all time. I, I've read a number of his annual reports. Mr. Buffett does a lot of homework. He the, studies things to death. He looks at things, not just from the analyst reports, because typically, if you're getting investment research from a firm or online, it's designed like a sales bulletin. So you typically get the bullets in there that tell you all the reasons you want to own it. And with only 6% of the research coming out saying sell, the research is overwhelmingly on the positive side. So you see far more positive reasons to buy than you ever see reasons to sell. So the reasons to sell is where if you're doing homework, that's where you really have to dig in if you're buying individual securities and look at the positives, but also you need to make a paper. And if you're old fashioned like me and, and don't want to create an Excel spreadsheet, I take a good old fashioned eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and I divide it in half. I just take my pen, divide it, put a line down the center. I put the positives on one side and the negatives on the other. And I think of as many positive reasons to buy as I can. I think of as many negative reasons to buy as I can. And usually that, those come about by digging in and doing some research. But then you've got a balanced view of before you even get in. Or if you own it for a while and you've owned a stock for a long period of time and the price action isn't very good, well, maybe it's time to pull out that sheet again and review the negative things. And maybe there's some new ones to add to. And we'll give you some 20 points here to look at uh, why you should sell a stock. And if one of those pops up, well, maybe it's time to hit the sell button. Okay, let's get into some of those things. When you find something with superior total return prospects to what you own, and you have an example here of Suncor Energy versus Husky. Well, here again, if you look at the two companies, they're both in a very, very tough sector. I mean, to say that energy has been a cakewalk, it just hasn't with the brutal legislation that we have coming through, uh, the environmental issues. I mean, there's just a whole lot of things stacked up against energy companies, taxation and so on. So this has been a tough sector to be in. But you have names that have done better than others. And so you take a look at Husky, for example. Well, in that sector, there's companies that are just doing better. And Suncor certainly is a name of a company that has executed better than, than Husky has. And so I know a couple of years ago, I'd, own, I'd been a long-term holder of Coca-Cola. And every quarter, Pepsi was doing better. 
And part of the reason Pepsi was doing better is they have salty snacks, the the Doritos and and all these spicy chips. And if you go into any of the grocery stores, you see how much shelf space is taken up by products that are owned by Pepsi. And that is one sector of the market where it doesn't seem like the health food gurus, they're focusing on pop, but they're not focusing on all junk the, food. <laughs> on the other massive amounts of junk food. Now, eventually, maybe they will, but salty snacks are growing dramatically. So I just looked at the numbers. Pepsi was cheaper and was growing faster. And they both had comparable balance sheets. They both had great management. So I switched from Coca-Cola a number of years ago to Pepsi because they were growing faster than Coca-Cola was. And that's just an example. If you're in a stock and you find that for a reasonable valuation, you can switch to another sector or another stock in the sector and get superior growth, well, usually opt for the superior growth. That's a reason to sell. Okay, let's talk about uh, when a company takes on too much debt. Good time to get out. And the example you have here is General Electric. And I think back 25 years ago in the Jack Welch days, this was a stock you just couldn't miss with General Electric. This was a, a golden boy or girl, if you like. It was viewed as the proxy for the U.S. economy. And it wasn't long ago that General Electric was trading at $60 a share. And now it's hovered around the $8 to $14 range. And it's only a shadow of its former self. It's had to get rid of a lot of different divisions. It has had to focus on reducing its debt. And it's brought in new management that's restructured things. But here's a company that bought everything in sight. And often it paid too much for the acquisitions it was making. It would tend to buy them at the top of the market. They would drop. Halliburton's a good example. In fact, we'll be talking about that in a minute or two. They just paid too much for the acquisitions that they made. They sold things at the bottom of the market. They used the cash to pay down debt, but they also then went and turned around and bought things at the top of the market. And of course, then they ended up having to recycle out of them when they got cheap again. So Here's a company that's taken on too much debt and hasn't been able to get any return off of it. Now, if I borrow a billion dollars and I'm making 20% a year off it, and I'm using that 20% profit to pay down my debt, well, hey, that's not a bad thing. But if I buy all these assets and they turn to be turn out to be slugs, where they're not generating any cash flow, and so I've got this huge debt burden that I'm under, and banks are relentless. If you're a small business, they're they're regularly looking at their loans to protect their deposit base. And so there's all kinds of covenants in these debt arrangements where they get increasingly onerous for you if your credit rating drops. So you don't want companies that raise their debt and buy assets that frankly don't generate any positive cash flow. That's the kiss of death. So if you see companies taking on lots of debt, and generally, my benchmark is I like to buy companies where their cash flow can cover all of their debt in three years or less. So the cash flow is enough that they can pay off everything in under 36 months. If you get more than that, that's when you start getting risk. If interest rates go up, if economic conditions slow down, all of a sudden, the company gets backed into a corner by its by its debtors because they make sure they're looked after first in front of you, the shareholder. So if debt goes up, 
it's a good reason to say hostile vista. And and we, they got caught in the economic crunch back in in '08. They they had uh, they were in areas that they shouldn't have been in. Weren't they? Oh, they had. They were in finance, and yeah. of course, during the Jack Welsh days, that <laughs> was the go-go days. That was a gold mine for them. And at one point, they were getting half of their earnings or profits coming from the financial sector. But as a result, they started making riskier and riskier loans, and their structure of their loans turned out to be a lot higher profile, risk profile, than they had previously. In other words, they were reaching for yields and profits. And then when the meltdown came in 2007 to 2009, this stock went to $4. And frankly, I don't think if it hadn't been for a government bailout that they would even be around today. Well, that's a tough one. Tax loss selling to offset gains. Red flag? Actually, that's a reason to sell a stock. If it's gone down and you find at the end of the year you've made profits, and often your profits will come unexpectedly. You own a stock and it gets taken away from you because another company comes in and buys it, and whether you like it or not, you've got, you got a big gain. Well, typically, in late in the year, I always sit down and look at my portfolio, figure out what I've made in capital gains, if I've made any capital gains that year, and I look at the companies that are down. And so if I have a company that, frankly, is turning out to be a dud, I just sell it, use the loss against the gain, reduce my taxes. Or if I have a company that looks like, yeah, the next three years look promising, but the next six months this thing isn't going to do anything, I'll sell it because I have the option of buying it back after 30 days. So I'll sell it and use the loss against my gains to manage my tax. Because if you look at the tax code, and the tax rates, they jump quite dramatically. So if you're going to end up moving to a, another higher tax bracket and paying maybe 3 or 4% more tax on the total, it might be worth your while to sell something off, take the loss, buy it back in a month, or, or look for something else because it can save you a lot in income tax. Okay, there you go. Now, what about when a company finds itself in a competitive situation that it's going to take a long time to recover from or won't be able to at all? The Technology revolution has really changed the outlook for many industries. Um, remember Yellow Pages? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, and of course, now uh, you can get the uh, white and yellow pages online, but frankly, they build an advertising model around that, but that's way less profitable for them than the big books that were delivered to your doorstep. So that's an example where technological innovation has almost wiped out an industry. Newspapers are another example. Uh, you could also look at the mutual fund industry, which is having a hard time competing with exchange-traded funds or ETFs. So that industry, you're seeing slowly but surely more redemptions than purchases. So the amount they have to management goes, the manage goes down. Of course, they charge a fee. Their profitability is based on their assets under administration, as they call it. So that's an industry that is slowly deteriorating. Those kind of industries, when you see that technology or a change in preference is eroding their profits, it's time to say goodbye rather than riding them all the way down. 
I guess you could make that argument in some people's minds with the oil and gas industry these days. They feel it's a sunset industry, although the numbers keep saying it's going to be around for the next 40 or 50 years. So that's, I guess that's one where you have to make up your mind where you stand on that. Yeah, and, and frankly, it doesn't mean getting out of it. You find the more profitable companies because there are companies that have very profitable niches that are growing in that industry. But Maybe you maybe you cut back your exposure. So if energy was five or six percent of your portfolio or ten percent, maybe you'd reduce it to five percent. Okay, let's get one more example in here. When a company makes a big acquisition in an area that isn't core to its business, a lot of mergers fail to reach their goals. You mentioned General Electric buying Halliburton. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Now, when you think of General Electric, you think of a company that makes airplane engines, that makes appliances, appliances that makes locomotives, that makes light bulbs. Uh, light bulbs. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, this has been their legacy. It's manufacturing. And of course, at one point, uh, they got into, they bought amusement parks. They bought a network. They got into uh, lease financing. Uh, the, the latest example was they bought Halliburton, which is a company that's involved in the oil service industry, which frankly, they don't know that much about. They have a technical core competency, which this was a company that was in the Dow Jones Industrial Average for over 100 years, got kicked out because they strayed. So when you see a company that is very good at one thing, but they decide because I'm really good at this, it means that all my brilliance and my management skills and all those Strategic other things. Strategic planning, everything, yeah. Yeah, are going to just migrate to this other sector and I will be able to take all those things I learned here and apply them there. Well, a lot of times it doesn't work. In fact, over 60% of takeovers are unsuccessful because of just that reason. Companies are buying things they know absolutely nothing about and generally they pay too much for them or they haven't evaluated the risk properly and kaboom. Uh, they end up writing down a massive amount of what they paid for it or end up selling it at a huge loss. So be very careful. A company's buying outside their area of expertise, good time to hit the sell button. Okay, so we've, we've just scratched the surface here. I think Ron mentioned at one point he had 20 different bullet points here on, on signs that you should look for and when to sell a stock. So we're going to come back and try to cover the rest of those. But before we leave today... One more question, this one from the Boychucks. Where is the best place to hold various ETFs? We talked back in March about five different ETFs. I'm interested in the bond funds and the international fund. Where is the best place to hold each of these? Well, typically, bond funds are interest-bearing. So if it's Canadian interest or international, even if they pay a dividend, you want to put them where it's sheltered because you pay the highest tax. In Alberta, your tax on interest is 48%. It's 31% for dividends, 24% for capital gains. So capital gains and Canadian dividend stocks, or generally you want to put those in your cash account. U.S. stocks that pay high dividends, generally you want to put them in your RSP or ETFs that pay high dividends. You want to put them in your RSP because if they withhold the tax, generally, if they're in the RSP, there's no withholding tax. So you don't have to claim that withholding tax back. It makes it just a lot simpler if you think, for example, AT&T, which has a 5 to 6% dividend. If you held that in your RRSP, 
because over time the bulk of your gain or return is going to be in dividends off that stock. Good place to hold it is the RSP or the RIF. Now, U.S. stocks with high dividends, you generally don't want to put them in a, a tax-free savings account because that 15% withholding, you can't claim that back if it's in the TFSA. So generally, on your income-bearing investments, the best place for them is the RSP or RIF and if it has Canadian dividends, so it's an income fund that has Canadian dividends, the best place is in your cash account so you can get the dividend tax credit. So it, 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 it's a bit of complication, but again, it's one that you sit down, talk to your financial advisor, get some good advice, talk to your accountant. Often they know these kinds of ins and outs as well, right? Absolutely, especially the tax component is they're very well versed in it, and that's a good place to go. And every once in a while, is just a, just a side tip, take your portfolio down and show your accountant, and he'll have some tax-efficient advice for you on where to put things. And so it's just an effectively effective way to use some of the talent that, you're, that you have, you're probably not using effectively, to help you reduce your tax rate. Okay, there you go. So back with another installment of the Making Money Show next week to tackle some more of these points on when it's time to sell a stock to get out of Dodge or as Ron said, hasta la vista, baby. Ron Hebert is the financial coach, retired portfolio manager. I'm Gord Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.